This is Alexander Sadig, and you are listening to Stars End Podcast. Maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I just imagine myself saying that to anyone, let alone a friend. Yeah. <laughs> just go, okay, we're going to go, we're going to go do this thing. And I'm really counting on you. And if you, if you screw me over, I will break you. <laughs> like, <laughs> really? <laughs> This is the Star's End podcast, where we talk about Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, the Apple TV Plus adaptation, and other topics related to Asimov and sci-fi. I'm John. I'm Joseph. We've already read the original Foundation series, the prequels, and the robot novels together, and we've reviewed two seasons of the TV show. And I'm Dan. This season, we're going to be reading the Foundation sequels, with a couple of surprise detours on the way back to Earth. Welcome to episode four of season five of the Stars End podcast. We're going to continue this week our reading of Foundation's Edge, another four chapters. But first, we did get some news this week. Uh, we got the news that season three of the Apple TV series Foundation has been greenlit, which is fantastically good news. I wonder how long it's going to be before we actually get it. Um, it's taken a couple of years between seasons before. And um, I, no, just, I just lost eight months to a strike. Yeah, they had the strike. Although, although we know that David Goyer had sketched out season three, and they also immediately announced that Alexander Sidig, friend of the podcast, right, Dan? Uh, he's an acquaintance <laughs> of the podcast. Acquaintance <laughs> of the podcast has been cast as Ebling Miss, which answers a couple of questions. One. Was Ebling Miss going to be there? Uh, it was interesting to see the list of people who are going to be there that that Goyer mentioned. Magnifico, for example, is going to be there. Now, clearly, the mule as we've seen him is not Magnifico as we saw him in the books. So there's a bit of a mystery there. But we're going to get Ebling, obviously. We're going to get Beta and Torin Daryl. Who else did they mention that... that um, I can't remember, but you know, a lot of our a lot of our old friends from the books are going to be here, and so uh, I'm I'm excited. I I unfortunately my excitement is a little premature because it could be a long time before we actually get this season three. But it's nice that they they greenlit it. I think season two, it turns out, was uh, extremely successful. Uh, I think they really grew the audience in season two. And I think we all agreed that season two was very, very good. Maybe better than season one. Yeah, and certainly a lot more fun. Yeah. Which, which, I, which I think you need if you're going to get people to tune in every week, honestly. Yeah, that's, well, it's only a 10-week season. But but we're of course, we're going to get, uh, I assume, we're going to continue with the Cleons, that they will continue to be there, and and Demerzel and um, Harry in some of his various incarnations, and probably... Gail, who we know is going into stasis, it's going to come out one day a year. 
So we've got all our our old friends, except possibly Salver Harden, and and our and our book friends are all going to join us together at a big party. So I'm I'm very happy. I'll see if I can maintain my happiness for the next eighteen months to two years. <laughs> yeah, it was twenty one months I think between the first two. So and there was no strike there. Yeah. So. I mean, I you, you sort of hope that they would speed things up just because of you know having the practice of having done two seasons already but i think maybe that's a little uh bit of wishful thinking yeah on the other hand um apple might be more voted if if this if this second season was a bigger success they might be more motivated to you know move things along yeah it's possible and it's also possible that they might be a little bit less restricted by budget we we know that there were things in season 2 that restricted them like not such a big budget for CGI. Therefore they had to be very careful about how they used it. And I assume, you know, there was that scene that we talked about the cut scene uh, mm -hmm. at the end of Polly and Harry, which they cut to save one and a half million dollars. Maybe Apple plus will be less uh, tight fisted. Uh, yeah. I don't know, but we have all that to look forward to and speculate about. So uh, cool. that'll be fun. <laughs> stars in season six coming in 2026 yeah i mean like, if they offered you 2026 right now would you take it you know we just have to go into some uh, suspended animation and come out once a year and then there it'll be go. fine yeah that's what that's all we have to do all right let's get to foundation's edge it starts with a chapter called university but it is not the university that we might have thought it was, which is the University of Trantor. This is going to be on Seychelles. One of the things that the chapter starts out with is them talking about what seems to me to be a favorite topic of Asimov and maybe some of his compatriots who wrote space travel, the smell. This is not the first yeah. time and it won't be the last time that Asimov talks about how spaceships smell bad and how planets smell bad when you when you arrive back on the planet and open the door and everyone shouts, welcome home to the crap which is really not, of course, what they would have said, but similar. I'm wondering whether there's some like naval story associated with that, you know, that for, from Navy ships, which especially submarines. Yeah, I am under the impression that submarines uh, aren't all that pine fresh. No, I, I imagine not, especially the kind of strategic ones that sit under the water for i mean i'm not even sure how long but definitely months if not mm -hmm. up to a year and a half you know sitting under <laughs> sitting on the ocean floor waiting for the order that never comes thank goodness to launch their missiles um yeah but i think it predates submarines too i i you know i've read about kind of 18th century warships and how horrific they smelled and and you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's a story behind there. I don't know what it is. But anyway, Asimov loves to talk about it, and he talks about it here. Yeah, he's not talking about bathrooms. He's got to talk about something. <laughs> he's got to talk about something that smells bad. Yeah. And they also talk about radioactivity. In the last chapter, we had the introduction of the legend that came from Pebble in the Sky, uh, the synapsifier, Bell Arvidan, mentioned by name as Asimov name drops his own works to try to unify them into this story. And there was Kampor talking about how Earth is radioactive. And Pellerat and Trevise talk about that high level of radioactivity. And Pellerat speculates that the high 
rate of radioactivity on Earth might have been responsible for the high rate of mutation that explains why there was so much more diversity of life on Earth than anywhere else. And my reaction to that was, what the hell is he talking about? Like, did Asimov really think that? Or was that just something he threw out there to be like, well, this is the type of thing people would speculate about? Because well, he comes back to it in um, he comes back to it in Robots and Empire. I, I know he does. And we we only have the one data point as far as rates of mutation in life. And even he here points out that if there's too much radiation, all life will die. Right. Which is certainly true. But I don't know that there's really it's kind of like his approach to the the large moon that he believes that that is almost unique in the universe. I don't know that he had any evidence for that. I, and I, I don't have, think he has any evidence for this either. I, yeah, but, I'm under the vague impression that it was kind of a, a sci-fi commonplace during the mid 20th century to think that radiation creates faster, well, faster evolution. That may be true, but the idea that Earth has an especially high level of background yeah. radiation and therefore would have a larger diversity of life, that I don't think there's any... Yeah. I don't think well, there's any... Okay, except I think maybe we're, maybe we should look at it sideways, which is, uh, you know, um, Asimov had to explain why mankind, or wanted to explain probably, why mankind is the only technological species and they're not encountering any aliens as they spread to the stars, right? So, yes, it, it, although it, he does explain that in Foundation and Earth, I won't spoil how, but in a pretty unsatisfactory way, which also refers to another Asimov book. Mm. because he was he was and using these books right? to, yes he was using these books to unify everything and we'll get to a little bit more of that in a minute and then asimov makes what i i kind of felt like was a sort of a clumsy political statement in which the idea of nuclear war being responsible for the radioactivity of earth comes up and both pellerat and Treviz are appalled at the very idea. No one would ever use atomic uh, atomic bombs as weapons. Of course, they would never do that. That would be crazy. And then they, they give some example of a place where somebody wanted to use a fusion reaction and the, his crew immediately mutinied and, and hanged him. Um, clearly, Asimov <laughs> making a statement about human beings and nuclear weapons. I mean, he was very much a, a disarmament guy, right? I mean, he, he worked... And volunteered a lot towards uh, nuclear disarmament, I believe. Yes, anyway, I, fre I frequently wondered if we hadn't had the example of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, if we wouldn't have been way more apt to have used those things in the subsequent, you know, in, in the subsequent conflicts. Probably, although the, you know, what Hiroshima and Nagasaki, one of the things it tells us is that the minute we get something like that, we're going to use it. Right. You know, we don't build these things to put them in storage. Um, although I guess, I guess now we do. I <laughs> yeah. hope. Well, thankfully, <laughs> we have we've, we've just done nothing but store the damn things for so seventy years. Yes, no, that is true, and thank goodness we've actually destroyed quite a few of them immediately in the aftermath of the uh, Soviet Union collapsing. Although we continue to build bigger, better ones. Anyway, anyway, so they decide. Well, they want to find out about. Gaia and Earth and, and all that. And so how would you do that? Would you, what would be the first thing you would do? I know I would go into a city and wander around going from museum to museum <laughs> and supposedly university to university to try to find some clue, some kind of a hint. 
which is what they do. Anyway, <laughs> and Pellerat sees a name that's familiar to him, Quintessets. And so they, although Asimov has said that they've been wandering around universities, they now need to find their way to Seychelles University, which I guess they hadn't got to yet. And they there they encounter a young woman, sort of a receptionist, with um, musical high-heeled shoes. Just a little, a little throwaway there by Asimov. He likes to do that every now and then. Just put in something different. Just to, here's, so here's a cultural thing. My shoes make sounds when I walk. Uh, okay. Um, and Heel Girl talks about the planet that was first. They ask her about Earth, and she doesn't know the word, but she does know that there's a legend about the planet that was first. And she says that it's Gaia. And that it was ashamed of the human race and it took itself off into hyperspace. So they meet this guy, Sotain Quintessence. Uh, apparently people on, on Seychelles use their initials. Maybe Asimov was tired of typing out the name Sotain Quintessence. <laughs> I don't know. But they call him SQ. And he talks about the Seychellian myths. And here we have the tying together of more Asimov novels, because the story he tells is more or less the Elijah Bailey and Daniel Oliva detective stories story about robots, about two waves of settlements. I was surprised he didn't mention Elijah Bailey, although, as we know from having read the prequels, he gets around to it mm -hmm. later <laughs> in his life. But here he doesn't actually mention Elijah or Daniel. He just generally mentions robots and the two waves of settlements and the legend that Seychelles was settled directly from Earth, which he doesn't buy, but it's popular for the locals to believe that. Interestingly, he's never heard the radiation part of the story. He's only heard about the waves of, of uh, immigration. Um, I, I mean, I guess what we're getting there is that Pellerat and Treviz are piecing together the story from various different sources who each have some small part of the story, but you know nobody's got the whole story and they're putting it together. And then they ask him about Gaia and things get uncomfortable. His face falls, the light goes out of his eyes. He really doesn't want to talk about it. But they invite him out to dinner and he says, no, 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 you're outworlders. I'm going to invite you to my house for dinner, although I am a vegetarian. Uh, the Seychelles planet is at least a little bit south asian as we've noted before although quintessets does not have a south asian name they remark on it and he says that he is actually comes from ascone which was a planet that we saw in the original series where they had the foundations of religion forced on them anyway he invites them home and while they're walking towards his house he points out a pentagon of stars in the sky uh, pellerat is is admiring the sky and SQ points out a pentagon and there's a star in the middle. And there's some story about love and unrequited love. Whatever. They get home, they eat a lovely vegetarian dinner. Uh, and then they ask about Gaia and Mrs. Q takes off with a sour look on her face. She, she doesn't want this topic talked about in her house. And Pellerat has figured out that Gaia is actually the central star in that pentagon that uh, that that SQ pointed out on the way home. And uh, I, I guess it's because he's heard some legends before mentioning a Pentagon, mentioning the five sisters. And this is going to be important in a minute. And then Treviz does what I call the thing. 
<laughs> this is a thing that that Asimov characters do quite often, which is when they don't get what they want, they start making threats. <laughs> and he gets up and he's like, well, if you don't tell me what I need to know, I'm going to have to go to the ambassador and it's going to be an interstellar incident and war. And, you know, like, I mean, he just goes actually bananas with this, with this, <laughs> with these threats to this poor college professor who's like, okay, okay, I, I will tell you what I know. Uh, you know, I, it's really just a superstition to be afraid. I don't even know why I'm afraid. Like I can say it, guy, a guy, see, nothing bad happened to me. No bolt of lightning struck me. But apparently people of Seychelles have feared Gaia all the way back to the times of imperial weakness, a long, long time. And even the mule stayed away. And when they were, when the mule arrived at the Seychelles or at Seychelles and, and signed a treaty, because he never took over Seychelles, he left it independent, but they did sign a treaty. And he was heard to say, even I will not approach Gaia. And somebody who apparently like dropped a pen on the floor and was bent down to pick it up. So they had their ear next to his mouth, heard him say again. Bom, bom, bom. So what does that mean? Is Gaia where he's from? Is it his birthplace? Is it a world of mules? Speculation is rampant. So, okay. Onward to the next chapter, which is called Forward. Uh, Treviz has worked a bunch of things out. And this is a place where I, I don't know what to really think because I'm going to go through these things that he's worked out. Like there are a bunch of story elements that if you hadn't read chapter 14, you might look back at them and go, this, this is like too many coincidences, too many weird things. Like what the hell is going on? Is Asimov being sloppy? In fact, it's so pronounced that Treviz notices it from inside the book. And so that's what we're going to go over here. You know, he 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 sees that uh, Seychelles wants him to leave. Like he knows that he can he can just use the gravitic drive to just zip straight up into space instead of following a, a kind of an orbital path. And he knows no one's going to stop him. And he notices that although the computer has the Pentagon, it doesn't have the star in the middle in its map. Gaia is not in the computer. He wants to know how Pellerat knew about Gaia. And Pellerat doesn't remember. And Treviz points out that, well, I, I guess Pellerat has mentioned that he's heard legends of the five sisters, legends of a pentagon. And Treviz points out that it's only a pentagon from this planet. That in fact, these stars are quite close and have a very, some of them have a very high proper motion. And that uh, from any other, they look at, there are 86 other worlds in the Seychelles Union. They look at this this point from a bunch of the different ones. It's not a pentagon from anywhere else. It's only a pentagon from Seychelles. And because of the high level of proper motion, it's only been a pentagon for maybe 150 years and maybe less time than that. And so it actually is kind of important where Pellerat heard the story from because it has to have been recent and it has to have been either from Seychelles or someone who knew the Seychellian legend. So that means it's probably from Seychelles. And Pellerat can't remember, but Treviz is pointing out how odd that coincidence is. And why were they sent into exile? And why were they sent into exile with a super advanced Foundation ship? And why not go to Trantor? And how did they have a coincidental meeting with Compor? And how did they just happened to stumble over SQ, who just happened to have read one of Pellerat's very rare papers, and that Pellerat was aware of SQ's work. I mean, isn't that a bizarre coincidence? And so he 
explains all of these what at first might have looked like sloppy story elements as interference from Gaia that Gaia is trying to get him to go there and they ask the question is Gaia the second foundation and Pellerat says well why would they want why do they want to lure you there and he says and he's, he's starting to talk more and more about his intuition, which is a, a point that the story is going to turn on. And he says he doesn't know, but he thinks there's something he has that they want. And they're going to go. They're going to go and they're going to find out. Even though SQ told them all these stories of people who went there and no one has ever come back. Like people went for trade, people went for conquest. No one ever came back. Or, or I guess there was one of the conquest stories, a few ships came back. And we switch over to Mayor Brano, who has basically figured all of this out as well. She has figured out that something funny is going on with Gaia and that Treviz is really important. And she announces that she is going to go to the, quote, scene of the crime, unquote, to quote a famous Thanksgiving song, which uh, whatever. It's it's Alice's restaurant. Anyway, <laughs> circles and arrows and a paragraph on the back of each one explaining exactly. what each one was to be used as evidence against us. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I knew Joseph would, would would be familiar with that. I I know it too. I just can't okay, quote it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I feel like I could quote the whole thing from memory, and I bet Joseph can too. Anyway. <laughs> a lot anyway. of it. <laughs> yes, a lot of it. I'm sure I would get some of it wrong. Anyway, she also. In the on the theme of threats, she threatens Kodo, her her colleague and friend of decades. Says, "If you're not completely one hundred percent loyal to me, I'm going to forget about our friendship, and I will break you." You know, I've never said anything like that to any of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> I I say it frequently. Do you? Do you? <laughs> Have, haven't I ever threatened to break you two? <laughs> not yet. Yeah, okay. I'm sure that comes in handy as a department head. Yeah, absolutely. Next episode, maybe. Mm. Maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I just imagine myself saying that to anyone, let alone a friend. Yeah. <laughs> just go, okay, we're gonna go, we're gonna go do this thing. And I'm really counting on you. And if you if you screw me over, I will break you. <laughs> like <laughs> really? <laughs> anyway, uh, Asimov loves to have his characters threaten each other, though. It really does. Chapter 15 is called Gaia S. There's a long conversation between Gendibal and Novi. And I couldn't quite figure out what Asimov was doing. It, it almost felt like it was plot exposition for Novi. Because he's mm. explaining all these things to her. Things that we already know. And like, it's developing the relationship between Gendibal and Novi. Like, he's becoming very fond of her. And somewhat reliant on her. And he's even... I think he's actually trying not to be terribly condescending to her. Although he is a little condescending, but he's actually starting to like her. But it's a yeah. long conversation, which doesn't, it doesn't really go anywhere. They're just traveling, you know, they're traveling and they're, they got to talk about something. You can't play cards all the time. So, you know, they're just, I don't, it was odd. It was odd. And then Treviz and Pellerat arrive in the vicinity of Gaia. And they move in long, slow, cautious steps because they don't know what to expect. They've heard all these stories about people not coming back from Gaia. And uh, I guess the end of the chapter is where uh, uh, Treviz turns on the alarm 
not really expecting it to go off so he can take a nap and the alarm goes off. Something grabs them and they are being drawn against their will towards Gaia. And there's one more chapter in what we read this week. It's called Convergence, which literally is a perfect description of the chapter. Everyone is converging on the same place. Uh, Gendeval and Novi, uh, first they meet Kampor and they they switch ships and they see the beautiful foundation ships that he has. We meet, we meet a character called Literal Tubing, Tubing, the ambassador to Seychelles. Literal is a word that, uh, it's a naval term uh, for a ship that patrols the coast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, maybe Asimov just liked the word. I don't, I don't really know. And there's a whole conversation between Cadell and and uh, and the ambassador and more threats. Uh, Cadell is revealed as this kind of jovial, friendly, grandfatherly, and extremely sinister character who's always smiling, but is also always threatening everybody. Um, and he's like, we can't we can't call off the ships. What's happened is that the mayor has has brought all the foundation ships near Seychelles to kind of innocently wander over near the border. And the Seychellians notice, and they're not happy about it. And Cadell is not going to do anything about it. He says to the ambassador, do your job and keep us out of a war. We are not actually here to attack Seychelles. We are here to go after Gaia. It's actually the truth. So Treviz and Pellerat are being dragged towards, towards Gaia. They're not panicking. And Treviz takes note of it and says, I think we're being sedated. I think we're being we're being calmed. They speculate about whether the Gaians might be non-human. And they see a ship coming towards them to meet them. And finally, Brano is talking again with Cudell, and they talk about how there's nothing about Gaia in any of the archives. And she points out that Gaia, according to what they've heard and how long the Seychellians have been afraid of Gaia, it's way, way, way older than the second foundation can possibly be. And so she has realized Gaia cannot be the second foundation. And in a kind of a weird little sort of inverted reverse twist that takes us back to the original foundation books, she shocks us by revealing that she knows something that we already know, which is that Trantor is the second foundation. <laughs> Remember that in the first... in you know, back in the original series, we were all shocked to find out that Trantor was the second foundation. And now we're kind of shocked to find out that Mayor Brano knows that. Like, we already knew that. But what's shocking is that she does. She doesn't explain here how she knows. But she said, we're going to take care of the Gaians. And then we're going on to Trantor. And we're going to take care of them. Yeah. And that, like after really- 500 years of searching, you know, you, you get a smart mayor. She just she just figures it out. Yeah, you know. Well, the problem is they've only had six women as mayors, and so they just had these (laughs) idiot men who just couldn't figure anything out. They should have had more women mayors, and then they would have figured out where the second foundation was sooner. Yeah, that that might have degraded the writing, though. (laughs) Uh, So what do we think? Any thoughts, anecdotes, stories, rumors, myths? Well, to to start off, I I loved the bit about the... um, the five sisters and the movie. I did them, too. Yeah. You know, the moving them about in space. And this is how they, 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 um, you know, things change over time. And this is them from, from different positions, not just because I love playing with those, um, you know, those computer programs where you can go from star system to star system, but, uh, you know, because it reminded me of, and I must've read this in the nineties, one of Asimov's, um, 
one of Asimov's science articles. And it's it's a, a bit of trivia I've always enjoyed pulling out. Uh, it was called As Constant as the Northern Star. And uh, it's about how basically he tries to make the point that Francis Bacon probably didn't write all the Shakespeare plays because Francis Bacon would have caught the fact that there was no star in that position that, that you know, the um, the sky pivots around during C- Julius Caesar's time. The right. constant is another star is, is constant as, a, as the Northern star. That's a quote from the Julius Shakespeare play, right? Or Julius Caesar Shakespeare play. Right, 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 right. And of course, yeah. that's not because of the proper motion of the stars. That's because of the precession of the earth and the right. earth moves in a 26,000 year cycle. And but, I mean, I think Vega has been the North star and now it's mm. Polaris, but it won't be for long. Actually, let me let me continue on that. I, I have I had a question about this. I mean, of course, like, you know, moving to a different star system changes the constellations. That's easy right. to grasp. Like, I was a little bit doubtful that within 150 years, there would be a serious deformation of a constellation. So we don't have nearby a lot of stars with high proper motion. Yeah. So our constellations have been pretty steady. Yeah. The, the Big Dipper, for instance, which is not very far away, has been basically in that shape for a couple of thousand years. Yeah. However, there is a star called Barnard's Star, yeah. which has a very high proper motion relative. Sounds very close. It, it is very close, but you can, you can, if you're if you're very good, you can see the motion of Barnard's Star, not not see it moving, but like if you take a reading this year. Yeah. and take another reading on Barnard Star's position next year, okay. you will see the difference. That's really interesting. I did not. Yeah, know. like if you took a photograph every night of the sky, okay, the same part of the sky, you would, you know, and then flipped it together like one of those flip books. Yeah. Or yeah. put it together into a into a time-lapse photography. So, you would see Barnard Star moving. So, and there's so a couple, Barnard, there's Barnard's, another one. Okay. There's another one whose name I can't remember that also has a noticeably high proper motion. It's not crazy that you might have some stars with a high proper motion. It's not crazy. That is good to know. Thank you. I learned yeah, something. And, and and I was I was dubious until at at the point where they mentioned that the the five stars and in, in the in the five sisters were relatively close to Seychelles, which you know they also made it a lot more probable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not it's not crazy. Yeah, you know, like it's less crazy than you know the idea that we have the only large moon in the galaxy, or that radiation causes an unusually high level of mutations. Like those are purely speculative. And I, and I agree with you, Joseph. I I did like that. I did. I I kind of like this whole section of Trevise figuring all this stuff out. Again, I, I, I ask myself, did Asimov do it like this on purpose? Like, did he want us to think that he was being sloppy and then go, aha, I was not actually being sloppy. This was all for a reason. (laughs) Maybe I, I, I've been pondering, you know, through all the book, I've been, I've been pondering, you know, like, like who's being influenced, uh, you know, what, you know, and then, then they're finally actually kind of explicitly, explicitly mentioning that, you know, but I've suspected a lot of characters of being influenced or part of Gaia or the second foundation or what have you. Um, but they're, you know, really calling that out in this section. Oh, to me, like this is not the only time in Asimov's books that this kind of thing happens, although it is a particularly noticeable example of it. That there are lots of times where, 
like a character, there'll be some sort of plot twist where a character says, aha, but that never really made sense, did it? (laughs) And like, I, I kind of like my own best guess, and this is purely speculative, is that like, you know, he gave it to an editor. The editor says, this doesn't make sense. And rather than rewrite it, Asimov just throws in a kind of later on, the characters notice it and explain it away some other instance. Well, I mean, maybe, but like, like for instance, in the, uh, in that first robot novel, um, is the first one or the second one where is the second one where he solves the crime. Elijah solves the crime and they pin it on this guy who just, you know, they get him to confess because he hates being in a room with other people so much. Yeah. And when Lige gets back to earth, his boss says, well, of course we, we know he didn't do it. And just like, what do you mean? Because yeah, there's no way a guy who was that afraid of of human contact could have possibly done what you say he did. So who who really did it? And and we all went, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, like, like it was really well done. So that I mean, I yeah, didn't see it. Yeah, I yeah. didn't see it until Elijah's boss pointed it out, and I was like, hmm, that's a good point. So I think maybe he did it on purpose. I, okay, you know, he was a for all his faults, he was a smart guy. <laughs> and I think he liked to play with the reader a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's I actually, don't know whether this is an example of that or not. Yeah, I, I kind of pondered because this is his this is his first novel back after that long break from well, writing very little fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I wondered if maybe he was just kind of out of practice. It could have been out of practice, but it, it could also have been a kind of a commentary on his favorite type of novel, the mystery novel, yeah. where the detective puts together a whole list of of wild coincidences and says, I have solved the crime. And maybe he was kind of going, well, you know, real life doesn't really work that way. And um, unless there's someone manipulating it from the outside whether it's the author of the mystery novel or whether, whether it's some mule or anti-mule. I, I don't know. I, I, I would love to think that that's what he was doing here. And I just don't know. I Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that he put out a, a volume of his own mystery stories, non, non-sci-fi mysteries about the same time, didn't he? Uh, I think so. I didn't uh, read it. I haven't read it, but um, let's look at Asimov. As we've as we've talked about, a lot of his sci-fi stories were mystery stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what, what, one of the things that, that that it feels like in this novel is that there are elements that are like a mystery story, but they're not really mysteries because there's stuff that we know, and that makes them feel more unsatisfying, or, or kind of unsatisfying in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. Let's see, books chronological order. I think Asimov wrote more mysteries than I thought he did mm-hmm. before we started the podcast. So nineteen eighty there was the case book of the Black Widowers, which I assume right. was uh a That's bunch what I was of, thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. Um so that's actually before this. Yeah. yeah. And then nineteen eighty one. You remember how fond he was of and and and, and he's doing a lot of it here, like reinterrogating stories that he's told yes. before yeah. and i could see him making fun of him of of himself and the the stereotypes of his writing 
-hmm. you know, that people criticized him for cardboard cutout characters and coincidences and, you know, uh, bizarre factoids and stories that maybe didn't make sense. And maybe, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'd like to think that he was making fun of himself a little bit here with this. Could be. And I, at I, the same I, time, bringing the reader down that path, like, you know, yes, these coincidences are too coincidental, and here's why. I definitely don't think he is the type of author who would react to negative criticism by saying, these fools do not understand my genius. <laughs> Right. No, but I don't get the sense that he's saying that here either. Yeah. I, I, get the, I get the sense that it's kind of playful. Yeah, no, that's, you know, that's like, right. Let's I, laugh together about, right. about the way these stories work. Yeah. Yeah. And I if think... you want to just take the story at face value because that you like doing that, well, here's a story to take at face value. But also, you know, let's enjoy ourselves with, with, the, with the genre mm-hmm. in a kind of a meta way. That, that's reasonable to me. It, it's reasonable. I don't have any yeah. any evidence for it, but I I would just like to think that that's the case. Yes, there's also something called the Union Club Mysteries in um, uh, 1983. Oh. This is a collection of my 30 short mystery stories written for gallery. Um, I'm noticing a couple of um, anthologies of mysteries that he edited. Right, that's time. my question. Was the 1983 book new stories or was it an anthology of old stories? The 1983 was was uh, anthologies of his old stories. Let's let's look at that case book from 1980. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd have to. I think I'd have to pull try to pull it up on on um, um, archive.org and see if they had different copyright dates. Anyway, so it isn't entirely clear. Oh, oh wait, dip into these wonderfully wizardly concoctions of surprising murder and Asimovian logic. I've delighted readers of Ellery Clean's Mystery Magazine and Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine. So right. that is also, so those are the, the, the two that I can see here are, are collections in okay. 1980 and 1983. Fine. What else have we got in, in coming back to Foundation's Edge? What else, what else have we got to? Uh... All right. So where were we? I, like, where were we? Could you yeah. summarize it again for us? <laughs> <laughs> so in the beginning, there was a galactic empire. Um, <laughs> um, this this was you know these chapters are not are not the sharpest part of the foundation's edge. Um, it's I kind of there. Yeah, it's it's kind of you know I mean we're we're kind of getting some filler like things are going places right i mean we get right. we get a, a a path to gaia and we get the convergence uh but uh you know it's not the most action-packed uh set of four chapters i think in this in this novel um i i was i was just kind of uh stuck on the conversations with with sq are those his initials sq sq yeah sq yes. Yeah, it just it seemed like the whole the everything about it just seemed really weird, right? It was a weird meeting. I mean, like I did think uh, before the revelation that it was pretty improbable that they just run into this guy and they'd kind of know he'd know them and and whatever uh and then like the the whole conversation the fact that he invites them back to his house it's just all of it is 
just seemed incredibly unlikely. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. If yeah. someone showed up at your university, I can ask both of you guys this. A stranger showed yeah. up at your university and expressed a desire to see you to a receptionist somewhere. Yeah. And the receptionist came and said, there is someone here to see you. Would you say something like, only if it's Janov Pellerad from Terminus, everyone else tell them to go away. But that one guy I will see. Like, I would, would just say yes. <laughs> I mean, would you really do that though? Would you like say, tell the stranger to go to go away? I don't want to talk to them. Like, is I, that common among college professors? Yeah. So first of all, the, the most unrealistic uh, part of that scenario is that our department would have a receptionist. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, this that's a fair point this this has been cut like generations ago <laughs> um but supposing we did have a receptionist and yeah. i would i would and they came over and said that uh i would be like um no no i don't want to see anyone really? because <laughs> because it it's so unlikely that i would I would think it's some weirdo off the street who has some strange grudge against me and like wants to assassinate me or something. Uh, and if it's not some weirdo, then, you know, I'm busy. I don't want to talk to anyone. Just let me do my work. Huh? Okay. Uh, yes, okay I, 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 yeah. So I think I would be yeah, well, probably because I want to avoid my work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I got a, a, a random letter from somebody about two years ago and and i haven't dug into it but you know w w with some uh with some math that he'd figured out and he wanted to run it by somebody and and i i certainly remember when i was at, at florida atlantic there was a couple of times that people came in and you know they wanted to talk to a professor because they thought they'd pr proven Fermat's last theorem yeah or something. yeah there's <laughs> like seriously professors do get do get email i mean emails now from just randos who have some bee in their bonnet and they want us to recognize their genius and people other than your students you're talking about. other than other than the students yeah just just randos who are you know sometimes they like mass email everyone at the university and sometimes they'd like single you out if they happen to think that you're in the area that they want to read about uh or talk about and uh but in any case it's just like you know you know kind of crank crank yeah stuff right yeah i mean when i was part of the skeptics group we would often get people who wanted they wanted something very specific from us which was that they were quote unquote skeptical about almost everything but they had one pet theory mm -hmm. it was usually completely bizarre and off the wall <laughs> and they wanted us to like give them our imprimatur you know that, that yeah that, right <laughs> oh the skeptic society looked at this and not this it wasn't the skeptic society but the skeptics looked at this and and they bought you know like you know i must be right we had an awful lot of that i mean i actually <laughs> i actually once there was a there was a guy who used to write the mathematical games uh, column for Scientific American. Mm -hmm. His name was A.K. Dudney. He's a pretty famous mathematician, Canadian guy. Mm -hmm. And um, he, after 9-11, he engaged in a whole bunch of conspiratorial thinking about 
Yes. He did not believe that the phone calls that came from the planes were real. And he spent a lot of time trying to prove that that was the case. And I had interviewed him through entirely through email. I've never met AK Dubey. But he wrote a bunch of skeptical books. There's one called Yes, We Have No Neutrons, which was like a list of various crank things that had come out. One of them was Cold Fusion. And that was, you know, they claimed that they had fusion without emissions of neutrons. And, mm -hmm. and you know, the whole thing <laughs> fell apart on closer examination. Also so Florida Atlantic University, if I if I remember correctly. What's that? I said also Florida Atlantic University, if I remember correctly. What, Cold Fusion or AK Dudney? Oh, uh, you Cold Fusion. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so there were a few places. But anyway, the point is that someone else... So I, I, I interviewed him. I wrote kind of glowingly about his skeptical bona fides in our newsletter, which was on the internet. So you know anyone could do a search on him and they would find my interview with him. And I said great things about him. And then after 9-11, he came out with all these crank theories and someone else wrote an article about him and his crank theories and said, well... You know, these sound kind of cranky, but listen to what John Blumenfeld from The Skeptics <laughs> said about him. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> OK. You know, and I actually had to respond to that because it was it was uh, I got into a little thing with him again about it because he uh, he really stuck to his guns about these. these it, yeah, it was really sad. Anyway, I'm not sure why I told that story. Uh, so anyway, like this this interview, um, Dis, like despite the unreality of it and the weirdness of it yeah i mean it was kind of fun mm -hmm. like uh, you know and and um i like i like the idea of sq sort of hemming and hawing and trying to get over his own inhibitions as like a, a scholar right who's who's trying to put down his own um you know, upbringing and, and talk about Gaia, um, you know, but like it didn't ultimately it, I don't know, somehow it just kind of left me um, a little bit disappointed in like the way this played out with the threats and like, that's, that's the, what, what kind of resolved it. Yeah. Well, they also, also kind of undermined the whole thing. Because um, you know, if, uh, Treviz looks at this and says, "No, you know, I didn't do anything. He was he wanted to tell me. He would have shouted right. at me." So then, why threat? Like, do you just threaten people for fun? Like, I mean, I could I could have waited until he told me, but I get my I get I really. <laughs> well, I had the impression that he didn't know that until after it happened. Okay, right. Maybe he hadn't realized it. He did mention later on. I was pretty rude to him, and he still didn't like throw us out. Yeah. So you know, it could be that he was doing it on purpose just uh, to maybe. prove out his his thought. I don't know. I'm 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 bending over backwards again for Asimov, as I often do. <laughs> and then he gets to wave like like we said, he gets to wave his hands over the whole thing by saying, "Ah, but that was all interference from Gaia." That's why all of these crazy coincidences happen. Yeah, I, so, yeah I, am, I don't know. I am curious to find out what sort of influ what sort of outside influences are happening and to whom, because I don't remember any of that from the from reading the book forty years ago or, or whenever it was. Well, yeah. I mean, it does feel like he purposely directed us towards thinking that guy was the second foundation, although we already knew that it wasn't. Yeah. Because we know where the second foundation is. Yeah, and, and the second foundation is in the book. 
Right. And, and they're going to Gaia. So, so we don't yeah. know what Gaia is, although he's, he's kind of hinting about the mule and all of this, which is a whole other storyline that I don't love. Um, yeah. the, 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 the mule is, is from, um, from Gaia. Yeah. I liked the mule a lot better as just a random mutant. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the to, for the, the story in, uh, um, foundation and empire to work he almost has to be a random mutant and so all of the stuff that you know you know all the stuff of the introduction of the second foundation and then and, and showing that they have, have uh have mental powers and then you know finding out the mental powers are are much more common yeah, i mean that's that's in that that's in um you know foundation um the the last one second foundation. uh forward foundation Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, all of that kind of undermines the the whole mule story. And we are going to see some remarkable mental powers later on in this book, which struck me as very, very far advanced from what we saw in Second Foundation. Mm. Like, if you had told me in Second Foundation that Second Foundationers could do the things that uh, Gendabal and the other Second Foundationers can do, I would have been very, very surprised. Mm. Um, we did not get a hint of this kind of instant interstellar communication that we've seen yep. and things like that. Um, and we're going to see more remarkable powers out of them that, yeah, it's, it's you know, it, it, it reminds me of the three musketeers and I'll tell you why, <laughs> because I'd love to go down digressions. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's, it's, uh, were they Aramis, um, obviously D'Artagnan, Who's the other one? Aramis. It doesn't matter. Porthos. Porthos is the giant, right? He's big and strong. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dumas kept writing more novels because they were very successful and he made a lot of money out of them. So he wrote like 20 years after and 10 years after that and a whole bunch of other books. And every time he writes, he wrote another book, Porthos got bigger and bigger and stronger <laughs> and stronger until he was like this monstrous, enormous character that you know does not compare very much to the one you see in the first three musketeers book hmm. and um, and um, the second foundation kind of feels that way to me that they're they're, they're getting so powerful here uh, we haven't seen the full extent of their power yet but we will before the end of this book oh wow cool okay spoiler alert <laughs> maybe maybe not cool so joseph Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So I'm I'm just curious. Like at this point, if you don't remember anything, what what do you think Gaia is? Oh well, I I remember. Um, okay. Well, I, th I I think I do remember that. I, I remember some scenes. Um, Gaia. It's basically a group mind, isn't it? Speaking of spoilers. Sorry. <laughs> I, I was asked the question. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and it is kind of. And and uh, he's done a pretty good job of hiding that from us. Yeah, he has. This point in the book. Um, you know, reading this for the first time, you at this point you're very curious. Like yeah. clearly the Gaians are not the second foundationers. That's but that's been clear to the reader, if not to the people in the book. And there's this whole mule story that, you know, what's going on with that, but we don't know anything. I mean, what 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 is going on? What is their technology? Is it technology? Is it mental powers? We we don't are they know. Non-humans. Are they non-human? That's been thrown yeah. in there. A little yeah. curveball. Yeah. yeah. And I can't help thinking he did that on purpose too, just to like kind of yeah. make us ask. Maybe they're not human. 
But then I, and I guess with um, speaking forward the foundation, then we learned that the Daniel came back and Daniel started setting this up. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Well, that yeah. is something that really has to wait for foundation and earth. Ah. Um, but yes, more or he, less. He in forward the foundation. I he did through throw out some kind of hint. Like he threw out a hint that he had a backup plan. Yeah, I've I've got something plan. else going on. I'm not gonna tell you that, but I I let's just say I have another pan in this fire. Right. And we get yeah. more detail. Now, obviously, Asimov wrote. Uh, foundation and earth before he wrote forward for the yeah, foundation yeah, so that was yeah, already yeah. out there right 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 but right daniel we we get a lot more details of daniel's plan in in foundation and earth mm -hmm. and how gaia and earth and everything fits into it so that's all that's coming but we're we're a long way from it and we're not gonna get <clears throat> excuse me we're not gonna get it here in foundation's edge what else have we got I think that might be it for me. I, think I mean, I'm just left. I'm just left. And maybe, you know, this is actually a tribute to Asimov, not knowing whether Asimov was intending to do some of the things that he did. I mean, you know, like the idea that he went back and looked at all of these coincidences and said, I got to do something about that. his <laughs> hands over it. And that's kind of compelling. But it is sort of a major point in the plot. Like, oh, yeah. the Gaians are maneuvering me here. They're maneuvering us yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. And I, you know, like his style lends one to think that at any given point in the book, he may not have known where he was going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That certainly is consistent with the way he, when, when he talks about his, his method, quote unquote. I'm not sure how true that was, though. That's the other thing. Yeah. Is like, was that really true? Like, I, I, I don't, I don't know. But I mean, I, I, it's a tribute to him that we don't know, that it's a, it's a mystery and something for us to talk about. It's very meta, but it's also, Kind of like, well, you know, how much of how much of this is him playing with us, and how much of this is him just being lazy? <laughs> is it a combination of the two? Is he is he going? I can use this. I can use this laziness that I've been, <laughs> been showing. I can make the, I can make a story out of this. <laughs> I just don't know. So let me ask this question is it, before we go. Sure. Are we enjoying the book up to this point? Yes. I, I enjoy Asimov always, even when it's objectively bad. <laughs> <laughs> I would say mostly. Why why mostly? I'm not entirely sure. It's just a lot of it feels sort of unsatisfying. Um yeah, and I mean, and that was sort of the 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 genesis of my comment that maybe he needs, you know, maybe he's rusty. It's flatter than I remember it being. And I'm sure when I first got this, the idea that there was a brand new Asimov novel um, when we hadn't had one um, since the gods themselves, which, you know, at that point in my life was a long time. Yeah. Um, probably overwhelmed, overwhelmed the, the, this, this piece of it. I just, you know, read, you know, uh, sat down and read it and enjoyed it. Of course, that being said, I'm also, also sat down and just read it. I didn't do the kind of close reading that I'm doing because I'm preparing for the podcast. So, um, so it feels a little flat somehow. Yeah, no, I think it, that's, that's a fair point. That's yeah. I mean, it, it sort of, um, in a way reminds me of, um, I don't know if you, when we were talking about, um, the merchant princes and it seemed a little bit too carefully 
pieced together. Right. There were like a lot of things that could have been left unsaid that got said. Um, I feel that there's a little bit of that going on in this novel. Yeah, I I'm trying to remember how I felt when I first read it because I had that excitement. Like I've got to get this yeah. one. I got it's Asimov, you know. And you know, I think about reading God Emperor of Dune, which I found to be flabby and uh, a bit of navel gazing going on and mm -hmm. it didn't have the kind of tightness that the previous dune books had mm -hmm. and 2010 by arthur c clark was i mean it's not even worth talking about <laughs> i really like 2010 did do you are you still even yeah. now yeah i mean then um i don't remember the last time i read read it but um yeah, I like the movie, and and I guess actually the only thing I've done with 2010 since it was first out is uh, dig through and find an excerpt for my Arthur C. Clarke class to read uh, five, six years ago. I, I remember the movie of 2010, and uh, I remember, like, well, the amusing thing about, well, maybe not that amusing, but <laughs> the movie was Akir Dooley, who played David Bowman. Uh -huh. uh, was very briefly a huge star after 2001 came out. Right. And he very brashly announced that he was an artist who would never play the same role twice. <laughs> and then he played David Bowman again. Yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, he, he didn't really have that. He, he was actually a very nice guy. Did, did not have a lot of acting work after yeah. 2001. He thought he was going to have this enormous career and it didn't quite work out that way. Um, but like for me, seeing 2010... I loved that they, you know, that Hal was back because I, I love Hal. Yeah. I think Hal's a great character and terribly misunderstood and, and, you know, yeah, sure. He's a murderer, but like, <laughs> he was driven to it by the humans for God's right. sake. <laughs> Those humans. They, they drove him crazy. It. Well, I mean, well, I mean, seriously, well, if, you, if, if you, if you meet a cat who's an asshole, there are probably humans responsible for it. Okay. It's exactly <laughs> the same thing. So of course the the voice of Hal was the same actor, and they right. brought him back, and I just I, it gave me chills, and and to see Keir Delee as David Bowman again was great, but like there kept being these scenes in the movie where people would see a vision of David Bowman, like he would show up in somebody's kitchen or something, and they would uh, yeah. say, "David, what's happening?" and he would say, "Something wonderful." Okay, fair and enough. That, that, that was not over and over again. That's yeah. not my favorite bit. And I then mean, when we finally got what it was, it wasn't that wonderful. <laughs> like it was like here's some planets, here's some moons. You can you can settle on these, but no, not that one. Stay away from there because well, but they also allowed. but they also ignited. You know, they, they added enough mass to Jupiter that it could that it ignited into a second sun, so that yeah, all those, no, that's, that's, that, that's that is an cool. amazing that's, amazing idea. It's pretty cool. I'm not sure how practical it is, but it, you know, like it doesn't yeah. have to be. I don't know. But anyway, I, 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 so the movie gave me mixed emotions. Uh -huh. The book I hated. Mm. Uh, obviously, you and I disagree on that. Fair I'm enough. just saying that the reason I brought it up, and there's a long digression, but the reason I brought it up is that, as we've mentioned before, there was this kind of resurgence of these greats of 1950s and 1960s science fiction. Yep. You know, Frank Herbert, Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, and I I do remember kind of consistently feeling disappointed by the by the output, hmm. including yes. including this one. Although I was so happy to get another Foundation book, so happy, 
Yeah, I kind of wanted something. And and you know what? There is no there is no likable protagonist in this book. I I there's no one who you go. That's me. I'm that guy. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I think at this point, like with with this and and 2010 and Rama two, I was probably just basking in the enjoyment. Rama two, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, there, there there are bits of Rama two that I absolutely love. Me too. It was um, the it was the further ones. The further ones, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure wrote... that. Oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna, yeah, yeah. The the further ones, the farther they got away. I think probably the more and more Gentry Lee we got. Gentry Lee, right? I mean, that's that's. I'm going to blame Gentry Lee for that because oh. uh, you know they were written in collaboration with Gentry Lee, and I didn't Gentry Lee write one himself. At the he end? did, and and um, and it might not be fair, but I, I tried Bright Messengers. It was called, um, and I, I purposely picked that up because one of the um, one of the bits in twenty. Um, in uh, Rama two that I really liked was was the the story around the the I think it was the asteroid strike, um, with um with the priest character and so like Bright Messengers was that character's story and I was sort of excited mm. to read that and I found it completely unreadable. Right, I mean the but, thing the thing about Rama that people both love and hate mm-hmm. is that. And, 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 you know, we've talked about how there's going to be a movie. I think it's Del- Dennis Villeneuve, right, is, is making the movie, uh, supposedly. Supposedly. Uh, that's in the works of Rama. And I just can't imagine people liking it because nothing is resolved at the end of Rendezvous with Rama. The thing right. just flies off and we go, well, there's a lot of questions we're never going to be able to answer. And uh, maybe they'll send another one because Ramans do everything in threes. That's the last line of the book. Right. But it's it's just kind of like a little travelogue of them investigating and then they run out of time. Well, but the, but the, yeah, but the but the okay, but the travelogue is fascinating. First of all, well, I found it fascinating, but I can understand a lot of people not finding it fascinating, and uh, yeah, fair it enough. Being particularly unsatisfying as a movie, where the ending is just yeah, we really don't know. We don't know what that was all about. I can I can see, but on the other hand, I mean, if you you look at the you know the the point of that is just how utterly and amazingly um, irrelevant you know mankind is to the 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 general universe and what i found really really not enjoyable about the sequels to run mm-hmm. with rama is the way everything is explained right what was to me part of what was great about rama was that nothing was explained and slowly over time clark and lee explained it all and yeah. i just thought you know what you should have left it I mean, a lot of people hate ambiguity. I personally love it. A lot of people hate it. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, and this is, we, we, we've talked about the Borg in the past and how they became, you know, more and more un, uninteresting. And I feel the same, honestly, about the Klingons, right? They become more and more in, uninteresting over time, you know, because they go back and they explain stuff. Right. Right. And it's, you know, it is almost invariably less satisfying than what's in my head yeah well tolkien talked about this he you know a a lot of people for for many many years people knew the hobbit and they knew the lord of the rings right people did not know that he had been writing for 70 years or 60 years this whole mythos of middle earth Mm -hmm. that only got published you know when he died and then has subsequently been published more but he used all of that material and he talked about doing this he used all of that material to, he sort of gave glimpses into this larger world mm-hmm. 
And he said that doing that gives you a sense of richness of the world. Right. But sometimes if you explain it, you ruin it. And that it's just kind of nice to sort of just like peek through a window and see well, there's a bigger world out there, but I'm not going to show you any of it, but just know that it's there. Right. And so to, to some extent, you know, answering those questions kind of ruins it because you, you you're just then you're right you're absolutely right like is what is what is put down on on the page as good as what is in your head never never yeah. or almost never almost never it's really it's really really hard well yeah i mean and it's like and i'm not a horror fan but um well actually i mean okay i could i could make, make this as a star trek reference right um balance of terror is a great starship battle and I and I had fond memories of that, but at some point I went back and I watched it, you know, and realized just how little of the actual battle outside the the ship that we see, right? Right. I mean, and but that doesn't really matter, you know. And, and right. In fact, those battle scenes are some of the weakest scenes in the in the episode because, you know, the Enterprise is taking random shots and getting all kinds of hits that they should never have been able to to do. Right. It's the stories inside the ships that are interesting. Right. You know, that, that scene in the conference room where they're all trying to figure out what to do. It's mm -hmm. a great scene. Oh yeah, completely. You go to Voyager, you go to you go to Deep Space Nine, you go to you, you go to Enterprise. There are battles where they have a lot more, you know, they, they have a lot more ability to do special effects stuff and they're comparatively weak. Ab because, absolutely. Yeah. I've I've always found Star Trek space battles to be very weak. And the more like Deep Space Nine got into these like hundreds of ships and the yeah. whole thing seemed very just it just I, I I look at it and I go, I cannot believe that's what a space battle would really look like. Right. Even though they had the special effects to do it. Whereas Balance of Terror, you know, you're really getting inside not just, you know, obviously not just Kirk and, and his crew, but the Romulan commander and his centurion friend and, mm -hmm. and the politics going on on that ship. I mean, if you think about it, like what we see inside the Romulan ship, it's mm -hmm. a very, it's like a Doctor Who set. Right. You know, it's a bunch mm -hmm. of guys standing around a console and, you know, we, we sort of see Mark Leonard and, and, uh, and the centurion almost through a view screen type of camera mm -hmm. angle. We really see one camera angle. So it's not, it's, you know, like that's not important. Mm -hmm. It's, it's what's going on. And the way we get this just insight into their their minds. It's yeah, hundred percent. Such a great story. That is one of to me. That is one of like the top three original series. Yeah, I would episodes. have to. I would have to think about top three, but it's way the hell up there. That's definitely. I mean, I like. I love uh, Mirror Mirror and Amok Time. Whenever anybody puts one of those questions out on Twitter that I don't answer, like who would be your first officer on, on your 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 sorry, it's always Spock. It has to be Spock. Yeah, it has to be Spock. Spock is how can anyone there's many great characters on Star Trek. Mm -hmm. But to me, no one no one approaches original series Spock. He is just yeah. hmm? well they'll yeah, no no one approaches a lot of the the, the original series folks for me. And again, original series Spock to me is a great use of science fiction, right? Because he's half human, half Vulcan. And at least to some extent, there is kind of an interrogation of what that would mean. And it's, it's great. 
Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Well, anyway. And then Dan is looking at us with this little smile. <laughs> well, well, it's kind of wry. Seems like wry, a wry smile. Maybe, maybe. maybe yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, we'll leave it to the imagination of the podcast audience to determine right, whether right. I was wry or not. I mean, there's. I don't think there's ever been an explicitly Canadian Star Trek character. Um, there was a scene filmed in Toronto. Uh, there, right in there in, were, in, there in were lots uh, of scenes filmed in Toronto. In Strange New Worlds, there was. Yeah. Well, they made it. They Most, made it into a joke, right? Because yeah, yeah. they get out onto the streets of Toronto, and one of them goes, "Oh, it's New York." Yeah. yeah, and the other one says, "No, it's not New York. It's Toronto." It, it's it's to be honest, it's one of the most recognizable places in Toronto. Just well uh, at at the Eaton Center, like anyone who sure. knows Toronto would know. But this. the joke, of <laughs> yeah. course, is yeah. that for yeah. many many years Toronto has been a standing exactly. Yeah. yeah, of yeah. course. And of so course. that's that's the that's the, the humor there. I but... I think all of Strange New Worlds was filmed in in Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. Or at least most of most of most of the episodes, yeah. Um, it's like but, so much uh, of Doctor Who and Torchwood was filmed in Wales in, in Cardiff that they actually had to incorporate that into the story because it was just so obviously Cardiff. Yeah, but I'm trying to think. We've had Scottish characters and 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 uh, been a Mexican character actually. And, course a lot of americans the russian character Chekhov. Yep. no one has ever just been proudly waving the maple leaf flag that i can yeah. think of yeah because kirk of course is from iowa right he's not from canada he's from iowa he works in space right. that's right oh well and even you are not really from canada let's let's face it well yeah, yeah that's canada. true i mean i'm not i'm not from canada <laughs> you work in canada I, you know i'm, <laughs> I, I'm here <laughs> just let's just leave it that way okay i think we may have run out of foundation's edge a long time ago though i think we probably did yeah so it's maybe okay. we this should, was sort of fun we should leave it there well i hope so isn't that the point we should probably leave it there and i, I are we done uh next time uh we, should be i think yeah. right isn't don't we just have four chapters to go let me double check i think we are we are coming to the end yeah i think uh and, and that's good because maybe something will happen it something oh, we're does. gonna something <laughs> does and we're gonna meet some new characters and this is the this the last part of this novel is definitely my favorite I don't know how you guys will feel, but but I think it considerably picks up in interest once we actually get to Gaia. I, I agree. I think that, and I think he introduces some new concepts, yeah, which have not been part of Foundation before. Yeah, yeah, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. That's it. We're done. Well, well, a lot happens, so you know, our loyal listeners should stick with us to get to the. the uh, stirring conclusion of Foundation's Edge next time. Looking forward to it. All right. Good night. That's all for another episode of Star's End, recorded entirely on an Earth so far mostly free of radiation. Our music is It Is Coming by Alex Mason, used for free on a Creative Commons license. Unless someone zeroth laws us first, we'll see you again next time. 
please like, rate, and review us, positively only, on your favorite podcast app. Also, check out our website, starsendpodcast.com, where you'll find additional content and our updated list of social media accounts. Good night from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end. <laughs>